in May, we had camp meeting here at College Dale, and uh, Brad and Tom and I were all assigned to the early teens. And uh, we were having a good time with them, and one of the experiences we had is called a work day. And so we took 40-some early teen kids, and we went to the Samaritan Center, and we were divided up into work areas. One group of kids went to this huge bin filled with hangers, clothing hangers. And uh, they had to sort them by size and shape, and they were doing that. Others were in the toy section, and they had to count all the pieces to make sure all the parts were there, and they would tape it shut, and they would mark full. I was assigned to work in the puzzles. We had a couple of fellas there, young men, and my job was to be with them as we opened up a box of puzzle pieces, dumped them out, put the puzzles together. Now you may wonder, it says 500 pieces on the box, why didn't we just count the pieces? That was my question. The response was, well you don't know if those are the right pieces. Because sometimes they get mixed up. So we actually had to put the puzzles together and if they were complete, we put them back in the box, taped it, and wrote complete. And then they were able to sell it at their thrift, thrift store. If they weren't complete, we put them in the box, taped it, and wrote incomplete. I didn't quite understand why we didn't just throw it away, but uh, that was their process. Now that's the first time I had put a puzzle together in, I don't know, maybe 40 years. It'd been a long time since I'd done anything with a puzzle. And so I sat next to this kid whose grandma is the puzzle queen, he said. She knows everything about puzzles you can imagine. And I said, well, what should we do? How do we do this? He said, well, the first thing you do, pastor, is you do the border. Those are the pieces that are flat on one side. Got it. All right. So we sort through all those, and we start to put a border together. Then he said, okay, look, look at the picture on the box and see something that looks like you could make that, like those are the colors there. All right. So find every piece that looks like that or has that color in it, put it in there and see if they'll fit together. Over time, I found it to be rather relaxing. It's, it's kind of fun to put a puzzle together until you get to the end and there's four pieces missing. It just doesn't look good. And so box it up, incomplete, tape it, and put it on the shelf. Do you realize that studying the Bible is a lot like putting a puzzle together? We get a piece here, we get some there, we find these connect in a way, and there are some borders, and then in the middle there are pictures, and there are themes, and there are ideas going on, and by the time you get it all together, it is a beautiful picture. Well, that's what we're going to do today. We're continuing our series regarding the life of Moses. But you're going to discover today that we're going to have to grab pieces of the puzzle from all over. Here's why. <clears throat> Years ago, I read that good preaching 
excellent preaching, great preaching, outstanding preaching, all have the same characteristic. They always take us to the cross of Jesus Christ. Well, we're at the burning bush today. So how do we get from the burning bush to the cross of Jesus? We are. And it's because when we look at this and put the puzzle pieces together, this beautiful picture is going to emerge. I'd like you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, we will read six verses in this chapter. Now, Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked and behold, the bush burned with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Now let's go back to verse 1. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. If you wanted to follow up on this, you could go to Acts chapter 7, verse 30, and you would discover that Moses had been a shepherd now for 40 years. He was 40 years old when he killed the Egyptian and had to flee Egypt. He has been a shepherd now for 40 years and he goes to the back of the desert. Now, where in the world is the back of the desert? King James Version calls it the backside of the desert. It sounds like an awful desolate place. What is the backside of the desert? One could say, well, it must depend on which side you enter. But there's actually a specific meaning to this. The New International Version translates it the far side of the desert. The New American Standard Bible says the west side of the desert. And that's actually the proper translation of the Hebrew word. You see, the Hebrew people calculate distance, not distance, but direction differently than we do. They use the same compass. But when we talk about directions, if I say, okay, orient your mind to a compass, what's going to be before you? North. That's exactly right. So what's behind you? South. What's to your right? What's to your west? <laughs> oh, your left. Sorry. <clears throat> and you put your right foot in the east. Okay. Now, here's how the Hebrew people do it. They orient themselves to the east. So what's front for them? What's back? West. So the backside of the desert is where? The west. Moses was living with Jethro, 
and his family, of course he's married to Zipporah, they live east of this region. And he brings the sheep to the west. And there is this mountain region. And he's there when he has this encounter with God. The mountain is called Horeb. It is also called Sinai. They're the same mountain. Now we're going to grab another puzzle piece from a different story, but it adds to our picture. So put something here in your Bible to mark it. We will come back to here. Go to the right and go to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. Now I need to give you some perspective regarding time. Here's an easy way to remember the Old Testament. Think in these terms. Abraham, 1800 years before Christ. Moses, 1400 years before Christ. King David, 1000 years before Christ. The Babylonian captivity, 600 years before Christ. Those are really the four high marks time-wise that you need to know. Abraham, 1,800 years. Moses, 1,400 years. David, 1,000 years. The Babylonian captivity, 600 years, all before Christ. Moses is 1,400 years. Now we're going to move forward in time to an experience that Elijah has, and we're moving 600 years into the 800s. 800 years before Christ, this story takes place. Elijah has told Ahab to get all of Israel out to Mount Carmel. They have a showdown there, and all the people recognize that God is God. And it's a great victory for the cause of God. After that, Elijah runs 20-some miles back to the palace with King Ahab. And as he's sitting outside the, the uh, palace, word comes to him that Jezebel has decided Elijah must be killed. For some reason, Elijah got discouraged and he took off running. Let's see where he goes. Verse 4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat because the journey is too great for you. Because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. So he went to the same place Moses was when Moses encountered God. He went there under the direction of God. God said, go, meet me there. And he did. And God gave him strength for his journey. It was there that the Lord rumbled with thunder and lightning. The earth quaked and all that type of stuff. And eventually there was a still small voice. 
And Jesus was whispering in his ear. And the Lord said, I'm going to help you, Elijah. I'm going to give you an assistant. His name will be Elisha. And I want you to go on and to continue the journey that you have begun. Now hold on to that picture because it's part of this overall puzzle. Now take your Bibles and let's go back to chapter 3 of Exodus. In Exodus 3 verse 2, it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, but the bush was not consumed. The angel of the Lord in this very passage is identified as God himself. And as I mentioned earlier, most scholars believe it was Jesus. It was Jesus that communicated to humanity. The flame of fire from a bush. The bush was on fire, but it was not being consumed. That is a supernatural phenomena. We might say it's miraculous. It's not according to science. It is not according to physical science. Can't be happening unless God is in it in some way. Chapter 3, verse 3, it says, Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. The burning bush gets Moses' attention. Moses, for 40 years, has been shepherding sheep. There's no record of him ever having an encounter with God other than maybe the worship service that Jethro, the priest of Midian, provides for the family. So Moses is just living his life. It's an everyday experience for him to be shepherding. Nothing unusual about the day, nothing that he was anticipating was going to happen, and suddenly in the mundane and in the normal, boom, God entered the scene. And it is powerful and it is miraculous what God is doing, and it gets Moses' attention. And we discover that that is the methodology that God uses when he's seeking to get our attention. In the days of Christ, Jesus worked miracles. That got people's attention. In the days of Christ, his preaching got people's attention. In the days of Christ, his teaching through parables got people's attention. They stopped. They had to listen. They had to look. Something supernatural was happening and God got their attention. Many, many people were moved by what they saw and heard Jesus do. Unfortunately, only few followed him. So Moses has this encounter with God. Moses will follow God. And God is going to change Moses' life. Now the symbolism of the bush is something that is amazing. What does it mean that there is a bush that is on fire but is not being consumed? And that's an interesting study. And, and you look at Hebrew scholars and you look at modern scholars and it looks to me like the modern scholars have kind of copied what the Hebrew scholars already had in mind. So there's some consistency with it and here's what they believe. That that bush represented the Hebrew people. Where were they right now in the timeline of history? They were in Egypt. They were enslaved in Egypt. They were in bondage in Egypt. 
They were under the whip of hard taskmasters. And for them, life was like a fire. Life was awful. Yet they were not consumed. They were not destroyed. Efforts were made to wipe them out as a people, but they were never consumed. Why? God was with them. And even though it was hard, even though it was difficult, God was with them and they were not consumed. And then the same principle applies to the church that Jesus started. Down through time, the Christian church has been under attack. Millions of people have died for their faith. And many people have tried to write the church off, tried to destroy the Bible, tried to ridicule and get rid of it and on and on. It's been placed in the fire, but it's never, never consumed. Why? God is with it. It also applies to the individual. Each of us in our own way, as we walk with Christ, will suffer. Each of us in our own individual way will have the heat, the flames of difficulty come upon us. But we are not consumed. Why? Because God is with us. But it applies to more than the Hebrews in Egypt. It applies to more than the church that Jesus started. And it applies to more than to us as individuals. And we find another piece of the puzzle in 1 Peter chapter 4. Let's go there. 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter's going to talk about fiery trials. He says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake in of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Those fiery trials are not ours alone, but we are entering into the experience of what Jesus went through. So we discover that that burning bush represents the sufferings of the Hebrews, the sufferings of the Christian church, the sufferings of individual Christians, and the sufferings of Christ himself. That bush is about Jesus. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, we pick it up, up the story in verse 4. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then God said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. So Moses was called by name. Moses is told to worship, for God had made the place holy. And Moses recognized it was God speaking to him and covered his face in reverence. Now notice this. From this encounter... God will instruct Moses to go back to Egypt. And Moses was to lead the Hebrews from slavery to the promised land. Moses was to lead them in the Exodus. Exodus is not a Hebrew word. Exodus is a Greek word. It means exit. 
departure or going out. And Moses named his book, well, he didn't name it that, but the Septuagint named it Exodus. Ton Exodon, the Exodus. And it means the exit, the departure, the going out. So Moses is told, you're going to go back to Egypt and I'm going to use you and you're going to bring all my people out. You're going to bring them out of bondage. You're going to bring them out of slavery. You're going to bring them out of the difficulties and pains that they're in. And you're going to lead them to a land that I have promised Abraham and all his descendants. And it is a land, a goodly land, a land of milk and a land of honey and a land where you will love to live. Exodus. There is another Greek word called isodus meaning entering or coming in. And we're going to look at that word in just a minute because that's another piece of the puzzle. So let's review. Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai. It is called the mountain of God. Likely it was never called the mountain of God prior to the Israelites coming there and receiving the Ten Commandments and dwelling there for just over a year before they journeyed on. But remember, Moses is the one that writes the story, and he's writing it years later. So when he says, I was near the mountain of God, his readers say, oh yeah, I know where that is. We were there. Moses, in 1400 B.C., encountered Christ at the mountain of God. Elijah, in 825 B.C., encountered Christ at the mountain of God. And God used the mountain to launch the exodus, the exit, the departure, or the going out. The burning bush was a living parable representing hardship, persecution, and trouble. It was not consumed, though, because God was in it. And then we learned that it represented the Hebrews, the church, the individuals, and Christ himself. Now, Exodus, Isodus, let's see what they have to do with our story. You can uh, let your hand go from chapter 3. We're done. Now we're going to make application. Let's go to Acts. Acts chapter 13. We're going to pull these pieces together. Right now you may be anticipating where I'm going. I hope you are, but I doubt it. Most of you are probably thinking, yeah, he's not feeling well, is he? Brad, you should have prayed harder. Acts 13, verse 24. By the way, before we read this verse, who wrote the book of Acts? I heard it. Luke. What was Luke's position in life? He was a doctor, a medical doctor. By the way, who wrote the gospel of Luke? Dr. Acts? No, it was Dr. Luke. Same guy. Now that's important because he uses the same language in both books. Same type of Greek phrases. And it gives us a clue. It gives us an opening. It gives us an understanding of how we find the cross in the burning bush. Acts 13 verse 24, he's talking about John the Baptist. After John had first preached, before his coming, before Jesus' coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. John was preaching the baptism of repentance before Jesus' coming. In the Greek, 
The word for coming is isodus. It means entering in or coming or incoming. So before Jesus' incoming, before his entrance into public ministry, John was preaching the repentance of sin. That's the beginning point. That's the isodus. What is the exodus? Let's go to Luke chapter 9. Same author, different book. Luke chapter 9. And we're going to start reading in verse 28. But before we do that, we need some background. The story you're going to read takes place in the late summer. Jesus is going to die in the spring, the following spring. So about six months later, he's going to die. Things are starting to get difficult. Things are starting to get hard. His enemies are strengthening their resolve to destroy him. His steps are weary. Every weapon from hell is being fashioned against him. This is the last lap, if you will. Jesus must go from this time period, fight through all kinds of obstacles, determined to get to the cross. He will not allow anyone to take his life. He will lay it down. But he has got to get through a lot to get to that cross. And here's what happens, verse 28. And it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that Jesus took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. What mountain was that? We don't know. A lot of scholars say it was Mount Hermon because it's in the north and it's 9,000 feet tall and it's wonderful that time of the year and overlooks the valley and he was kind of out in that direction. We don't know where it was. All we know, it's a mountain. Jesus took Peter, James, and John, goes up this mountain, and as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. Then behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Decease is translated departure in the NIV and in the New American Standard Bible. In the Amplified Version, which takes the Greek word and gives it the proper English meaning, it's translated ex exit. In the actual Greek manuscript, the word is Exodus, tone exodon. They are talking to Jesus about his exodus. Now think about that. Jesus started his ministry with an incoming. He is going to end it with an outgoing, an exodus. It implies his death. It implies the manner of his death. It implies his resurrection. And it implies how he would deliver humanity from slavery and take us to the promised land. And it is Moses and Elijah on a mountain speaking with Christ before he had spoken to them. He spoke to Moses telling him that Moses would be successful in his efforts to bring the Israelites out of bondage. He told Elijah, go forward, I'll help you, I'll support you, I'll strengthen you for the journey. These two men had heard God encouraging them in life. Jesus had spoken to them and they went on to great success in the cause of God. 
These are the two men that are there on this mountain to talk to Jesus about his journey, about his exodus. And believe me, they are ready to encourage him. Do you understand why? These guys looked forward to their salvation. We look back at ours. They are not entirely saved yet. If Jesus is not successful in his endeavor, those guys are going to be killed. You can't be saved without Jesus being your savior. And Jesus has to be successful in order to save you. So you can only imagine how they're pleading with him, how they're encouraging, how they're seeking to strengthen his hand to go forward. You'll be all right. Your father will be with you. The angels will be with you. We're with you. We're cheering you on. All humanity is depending on you, Lord. You, you can do it. And, and you talk about cheering for a team. You know, I don't want to be disrespectful or anything, but just imagine how they're trying to encourage Jesus and strengthen his hand to go forward. Jesus, indeed, is strengthened for the battle. And Jesus goes to Calvary. And there, he delivers us from bondage. And there, gives us the hope of the promised land. You see, in the story that, we, that began in Exodus, Jesus was the bush. And his life was the bush. It was on fire but not consumed. He had nails driven into his hand. He was mocked. He was laughed at. He was scorned and derided. He died and he was buried. But Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus conquered the grave. Jesus defeated sin. And Jesus gave us salvation in his name. And I'm wondering today if there's anyone here who would like to say thank you to the Lord for doing that. And if you would like to say thank you to the Lord, I'm going to ask you to stand. Father in heaven, We, we will never, ever be able to express enough how thankful we are to have our sins forgiven and to have our place assured in heaven through Jesus. But we're standing today to say thank you, thank you, thank you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.